Welcome to Fanboy and the Hater, a podcast hosted and produced by Mike Hall and Jim Harris, where we discuss the best and worst in movies, TV, and pop culture, edited by Jim Harris, and music by Mike Hall. Friends, thank you for joining us. We have something very special for you today. And if Jim's outline is any indication, this is going to be part one of a 38-part series. Jim, go ahead and get us started. We're talking about the good place. Holy mother-forking shirtballs. And in fairness, we must warn you, we are entering the spoiler place. So this is going to be a spoiler-heavy episode about one of our favorite TV shows. So if you have not yet watched The Good Place, first of all, you're basic. Second of all, you should stop listening immediately and go binge the entire four-season run of The Good Place. It's an awesome show. But if you continue past this point, you have been warned there will be spoilers. Please never say you basic again. you basic! The premise of the show is about the afterlife and moral philosophy. Doesn't that sound hilarious? It actually is. So then the premise of the show... During your time on Earth, every one of your actions had a positive or a negative value, depending on how much good or bad that action put into the universe. When your time on Earth has ended, we calculate the total value of your life. Only the people with the very highest scores, the true cream of the crop, get to come here to the good place. And if you have not enough points, you go to the bad place. It's not exactly heaven and hell. They even say in the very first episode that all world religions got about 5% of the afterlife correct. But they do sometimes just simplify it and refer to it as heaven and hell. But that's generally the premise of the show. And its underlying questions really are, what does it mean to be a good person? Why should you be a good person? And if you're not a good person, can you become a better person? What are your initial takes on the show, Mike? First off, I think this is a very entertaining series. If I'm being completely honest, I only started watching it because of Kristen Bell. My forever love for Kristen Bell, that is completely one-sided. But as I gave it a chance, the show quickly cemented itself as a legacy in my mind as one of the best shows in history. Wow. I absolutely love everything about this show. It's got a, just a great mixture of comedy and thought-provoking material. That The way they mix them is just nothing short of genius in my head. And as someone that has often studied various world religions throughout my life, I really enjoyed how they openly portray the afterlife and dive into that without directly discussing religion in general, anything specific, other than, like you said, just the general 5% of world religion, and then Jason being a monk. They kind of dive a little bit into that, but really, I mean, I think they mentioned Buddhist things a couple times, but otherwise they don't really talk about religion while they still, like, the entire show is about the afterlife. And I, I just think it's fantastic, and they balanced everything so well. I said wow, but I completely agree that it is one of the best shows of all time. I also did greatly appreciate that it was philosophical, not religious. 
And I also think it's one of the reasons why this show works as a comedy, because if they had tried to do this as a drama, they probably would have had to get a little bit religious, or at the very least, had a religious character, a devoutly religious character on the show. Sorry, I just pictured Jesus on South Park. <laughs> <laughs> they probably wouldn't have done it that way. <laughs> now I'm picturing Satan on South Park. Up there, there's so much room. <laughs> Sorry, proceed. I don't mean to keep interrupting you. <laughs> That's okay. The point there is that they made the intentional creative choice to avoid religion, and I think the show is better for it. Like, similar to you, which I'll come back to later in our conclusion, I also have studied a lot of world religions and philosophy, and I, I lean much more to the philosophical side of things. I'm not smart enough for philosophical. <laughs> <laughs> so this show is very good in part for that reason. It's funny. It is a comedy, first and foremost. But it is something that is definitely more philosophical than religious. The other thing I really appreciated about the show is it has an incredible self-awareness in the sense that I watched this show live, episode by episode, while it was on broadcast television, which is one of, actually one of the few shows that I chose to do that on. Instead of waiting for the end of the season and then watching the entire season all at once when it was on a streaming service like Netflix, I actually watched this week by week. I actually did too. And it's very, very, I think there's three shows ever really that I've, you know, Game of Thrones I kept up on. This show, I think that might be pretty much it that I actually keep <laughs> up on on a, like a regular basis. And, you know, if I get a couple weeks behind most shows, I'm like, okay, I'll just watch them later. But this show was like, oh, it was on last night. I need to watch it now. I record it. I don't even know when things air, but immediately when I see it on my DVR, it's like, okay, I need to watch it now. Forget everything else. This is on. This is what I'm focused on. Definitely. The end of season one kind of ends on a bit of a twist and a tiny cliffhanger. And I was like, wow, this is a really good show. But I was concerned the premise of this show could wear itself thin very fast. And I was afraid that if it was like other shows, they would not be self-aware enough to know when it was time to either change the plot or not drag the story out so long that it becomes not good anymore. There's only four full seasons in the entire show. Arguably, the first two seasons are the strongest. The third season wasn't as good, but it was still good. And they did, the fourth season starts off a little bit slow, but the last half of it ends on a very solid note. But again, other shows would have ruined itself by trying to stretch this out to like six or seven seasons. And I don't really think its premise would have been as good if they had done that. Yeah, I agree. And it's it's actually fairly quick paced as well, actually. Yes. They, nothing really drags. They keep it going at a really good pace. Like you said, they're very self-aware, knowing when to end bits and when to end storylines and pieces. And even leaving the end of the season to be it, we could stop here if we wanted to or we keep going if we wanted to. And even the end of the fourth season, I really think they, they did the same thing. The door is slightly cracked open where if they wanted to keep going, they could, but they're done. They told the story they wanted to tell. They did. With the exception of the first season, which was more, it was probably the only one that has a, a complete story. The other seasons, even before the season was over, they were already pivoting to set up the story for the next season. So it was very quick, and when it did change its plot, it didn't stay with that for too long. So it, it knew it had a, a short run that it could use, and it, it used its time very, very well. So even though I said the first two seasons were stronger, I loved all four seasons. You recently rewatched all of them. Yes. I, I just didn't have the time to do that. 
I would have liked to, and that's something I'll talk about later, but because of the way my memory works or doesn't work, as the case may be, I don't remember exactly what happened in what season. I remember most of what happened throughout the series, but I don't remember where what happened. And you say that season three wasn't as good as the other ones. I don't remember ever thinking anything like that. I thought it was, I thought the show was very consistent. Oh yeah, again, I rewatched all four seasons over the course of two weeks. That's why it was much more evident to me that I was comparing and contrasting seasons. I wonder if part of that too is you you do tend to like to compare things. Yes. Like, is this as good as that? Whereas I very much go, how was the whole ride? So I don't look for the valleys and the peaks. I look for, was it enjoyable throughout overall? So I don't really think as critically as you do about a lot of that stuff. I, I, I'm more of, hey, this is entertainment. Am I entertained? Yeah, I, I do too. But I mean, to its credit, there's not a single episode that I don't like. And there's not a single point where I'm saying, okay, I get it. Can you move on now? None of that ever happens. Which, if Jim never thinks that, this show deserves all of the awards. <laughs> I concur. <laughs> In your 46-page outline, <laughs> I think the first thing you had on here, you wanted to talk about the characters. I do want to talk about the characters, but one last point before we dive into that, because I did, I, not 46 pages, I have 21 single-sided pages of notes, which I compressed down into five wonderfully typed pages. I wrote large and skipped spaces so I can get one page. <laughs> but before we dive into the characters, which is the, the direction uh, that I thought would be best to take, instead of trying to go through season by season... Since I had the notes for them, I'll occasionally call out maybe a specific episode for being really good. So we're going to do a character-driven pass through the entire four seasons. But the last, the thing I had down here as a note is, one of the things I really appreciated about the show is, it doesn't waste time on a truly bad person. By that I mean, it's like we don't have a murderer or a rapist or someone who talks during movies. <laughs> All of the characters on the show are, they're not great people, but no one's horrible. Except for the one guy. There's one guy in the fourth season that they play with who is still not horrible, but he's a douchebag. But, but my point yeah, is... Count that as pretty horrible. He's pretty... He, yeah, he's the... <laughs> yeah, we're talking about Brent's. I like a truly, there's no need to argue this person should be in hell. They don't waste any time on that type of a character, is my point. Brett, we can come back to. He's the <laughs> exception, and they may have even included him specifically for that reason. You could argue that the people in the show didn't deserve to be in the good place, but they didn't deserve to be in the bad place either, which is a concept we can come back to. Right. If this was a drama and not a comedy they would have either had that type of a character or one of the twists would have been that one of the characters that we already knew had a dark secret and we find out that like one of them got drunk and ran over a homeless person and covered up the murder or something. They do a good job too of the characters that would be like that are the demons. Yes, that's true. Yeah, the demons get to basically be the horrible people that, who really enjoy torturing humans. Right. <laughs> I was looking along the lines of, yeah, that giant douchebag that treats everybody horribly. Yeah, the line about Brett I, I love is they say he was born on third base and he thinks he invented the game of baseball. He's that entitled white rich asshole who treats everybody like crap but doesn't think. It's like, I don't have a racist bone in my body. Yes, you do. You're a dick. But 
so, I mean, it was an interesting character, but he was a horrible person. And he was also <laughs> the only person to lose points after dying, which we'll come back to. <laughs> so, yes, he was bad. But the main protagonist and the true star of the show, which Mike has absolutely no problem with this, <laughs> is the irrepressible Kristen Bell. She plays the main protagonist, Eleanor Shellstrop. Woo! <laughs> and as her character says, she's a total snack. She is, to me, the main protagonist. She's also the most relatable and probably most complete character. The other characters, the, there's four primary humans on the show that are trying to find their way to the good place. She's the one that is the most complete person and the most relatable person. The other three are a little bit more plot device caricatures. They get depth to them, but most of the depth is left for Kristen Bell's character, probably in part because her and Ten Danson are the two stars of the show in terms of star potential in terms of actors. Most of the main remaining main cast is basically relative newcomers that you probably haven't seen in anything else. Yeah. Uh, Kristen Bell and Ted Danson are maybe the reason that people might have tried to start watching the show because they're famous and, and talented performers. Very talented. Yeah, Kristen Bell, that character, and I mean, she's built for you to latch on to because, like you said, she's the most well-rounded. She's the character that lived in what I would call, quote-unquote, the real world. Yes. Whereas everybody else, all the other characters lived in very specific areas of life where she was the one that kind of transversed and actually dealt with the crappiness of everyday middle America-ish dealing with the crap that everybody puts out. Yes, that's what I mean. She's She was the most relatable character in the lens through which we see most of the show. She's college-educated, but street smart. She's very selfish and vain, but also very practical. Like some of the stuff that a little over the top for her persona are things that everyday people, we may only think some of the things that her character says out loud. We may only daydream about doing some of the things that her character does. So it's a little bit of an extreme version of an everyday person, but you can relate to her perspective on things. Yeah, they definitely uh, inflated what the average person is or would be and made it Eleanor. And, and the show opens with she wakes up in The Good Place and Ted Danson, which we'll get to, is the guy in charge. And she finds out almost immediately that it's a case of mistaken identity, that someone else with her name who lived a much more virtuous life is the Eleanor Shellstrop that they meant to put in the good place. And she doesn't say anything immediately. She actually goes and looks for help from conveniently one of the other characters is a moral philosophy professor and asks him to help teach her how to be a better person so that she could deserve to stay in the good place, which is one of the major meta layers underneath the entire show, again, of what does it mean to be good? Why should you be good, and can you get better? Can you fake it until you make it? Exactly. And that just makes Like you said, she's practical. And uh, put yourself in those wings. If you're in the good place and you don't feel like you belong in the good place, are you going to go, you know what, I don't belong here. Go ahead and send me to hell. Yeah, exactly. It also works on a meta layer, too, of a lot of people, I think even people who think that they're good people have times where they feel that, that maybe they're not as good as they should be, or maybe 
don't deserve to be thought of as a good person. So that sort of self-doubt, I think, is also very relatable. And also, as we kind of said, people that think that they're really good and do deserve to be there when in reality they're horrible, horrible people. Which a few of the other characters do exemplify that. And we'll get into that. We will get into that. One of my favorite early jokes, it's probably made me laugh on the rewatch just because we have recently on our podcast, you and Reese had done an episode on Superman. Mm -hmm. And one of those things you guys had talked about was how some people don't like Superman because he's too good. And early on when, when Eleanor meets Chidi, who is the moral philosophy professor we'll talk more about in a moment, there's a part of The Good Place where they had the opportunity for an afternoon to fly in the good place, you know, magical things can happen. Hey, you want to fly? There's this thing where you can go find, feel what it's like to fly. And she goes to TV. She's like, we could be flying, and all you want to do is talk about morals. You're like the worst part of Superman. <laughs> and I, I can tell you right now, as somebody that is deathly afraid of heights, if I could fly, that would be awesome, because then I wouldn't have to fall. Yes. <laughs> Another joke, which again goes back to the whole idea of uh, underlying premise of the show is, why should we even be good? I think that all the time. Right. And there's one part, and this actually happens later in the series. Basically what happens in season one, it's a scam. Michael, who we'll get to, is pretending to be the good place architect, the guy, angelic-like character who has is in control of the neighborhood, which is what they call it. They basically have a group of people living in an idealized afterlife environment that they call a neighborhood. And Michael pretends... And it's a nice neighborhood. It's a very nice Frozen neighborhood. yogurt everywhere, it's great. Yes. <laughs> but the big twist at the end of the first season is they actually find out that Michael is actually a demon, and they're actually in the bad place, and they're experimenting with a new way to torture humans by having them torture each other. So philosophy tangent, the entire first season is actually loosely based on Jean-Paul Sartre's No Exit. Jean-Paul Sartre is a French existentialist philosopher who also wrote works of fiction, including No Exit, which is a fantastic play, which I read in college when I was an English literature nerd. But although you probably have never even heard of that play or that guy, you may have at least heard the most commonly quoted line from the play is, hell is other people. And that's what the play is. It's basically three people trapped in a room that they can never get out of, and they spend eternity psychologically torturing one another. And that is basically the entire premise of the first season. They try to get the four humans, we'll talk about the other three in a minute, to psychologically torture each other, because they actually are in the bad place. So, since I feel like being around other people is hell, does that make me a philosopher? Um, I guess you could call yourself a philosopher. All right. <laughs> well, I'll... Tell that to my TV as I'm watching it because nobody else is ever around. <laughs> yeah, you're in. We'll get back. We'll get to this as well. <laughs> Mike and I both kind of live in a medium place. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the major uh, underlying premise of the first season. And then it's the plot twist at the end. And they Eleanor figures out that they're actually in the bad place and they're being tortured. Later in the series, they actually get sent to Earth to do a little bit of a redo to try to be a better person. Mulligan. They get a mulligan. They get saved from how they died on Earth. They get saved from that, and they get to relive their lives. And the thing I liked about that part of the show, which is actually the, the season three that I said was a little bit slow, all of the characters try to be a good person for about six months. <laughs> 
And then they kind of give up and fall back into old patterns. But Eleanor especially, she actually does try to be a good person for about six months. And then she just gets fed up with it because it's not making her life better. She's not happier. So she's like, at one point, she's like, being good is for suckers. What do you even get out of it? And then another character is like, a feeling of fulfillment in your soul. And she's like, gross. That is the grossest sentence anyone has ever said. (laughs) Hearing Kristen Bell's words coming out of your mouth is ruining everything. (laughs) I am the spoiler. This is actually a bad place experiment for Mike. (laughs) Ruined my medium place. Before we move on to one of the other characters, the reason why, going back to what I had said before, she's the primary character through which we see most of the show, and she's the most well-rounded character and the most relatable character, because even as Michael describes her later in the show, she was a little rough around the edges, but she was also a really good person when she tried. And I think that that sentence sums up most people, mm-hmm. that when they actually try, they're actually good people. So here's... I don't know if this counts as philosophy, but just kind of where I struggle with this, and this is just general, even outside of this, if you have to try to be a good person, are you really a good person? Again, going back to like studying religions and stuff like that, this is something that I've struggled with for a very long time is I see people that are doing good things because they feel like they're supposed to do good things or like helping people because they feel like that's what they have to do in order to be a good person. To me, I'm like, if, if you really have to force it, does that make you a good person or does that not make you a good person? Which they kind of, I don't remember if they ever directly. They do on several occasions. I mean, that, I guess actually Tahani is actually kind of a good. I was going to go to Tahani, but yeah. there are even, even the judge later also reprimands them pretty much for that same yeah. thing. Again, it's, I've watched it as it came on, so I don't remember exactly what happened or what was said throughout it. But that's something, again, that's maybe then that's partially why this show worked so well for me is because it really addressed a lot of things that I'd already been thinking about for many, many, many years in a comedic way, which really speaks to me because unless I'm laughing, I'm not paying attention. The philosophical foundation of the show is incredibly impressive. They did have a, a UCLA professor of philosophy was their onset advisor, and even some of the real-life, modern-day philosophers whose books were mentioned on the show were even guest stars on the show in the fourth season. So yeah, the amount of philosophy that this show is based on is incredibly impressive. But to your point, there is a character called The Judge who is played by Maya Rudolph, and she is... I love Maya Rudolph. She's awesome. It's a supporting role. She's not in the show a lot, but when she's in the show, she's hilarious. And she's the judge of all things... Afterlife, she mediates all disputes between the good place and the bad place. She's not God, but she basically is the closest thing as you could say it, or a God concept that you could say in this show. But at one point, when they're trying to explain to her, you know, that that they think that there's something wrong with the system of determining how people are good, she actually reprimands him and says, you're supposed to do good things because you're good, not because you're seeking rewards at the end of the rainbow, yeah. which is a philosophical concept we'll talk about later called moral desserts. But that concept of you should be doing good things, does that actually make you a good person? That does come up a lot. I will actually say, from my opinion, Maya Rudolph's character is the weak point 
of this entire thing because I actually don't really like Maya Rudolph. I think she can be funny. She's got good comedic timing. She says things in a funny way, but very similar to me is with like Will Ferrell and Melissa McCarthy, <laughs> where like everything is the same. Yes. She's a one trick pony and it's funny for a little bit, but it gets very old very quick to me. And I've seen her in enough things that I, it's old to me. I'm done with it. Create something new, be more creative, or move on. But she's not a main character. She's a supporting character. She's also one of those characters where it's weird to say this, but there are a few characters that are comic relief characters, which is weird to say because the show is a comedy. Right. But because there are times when the characters do say serious things and do talk about philosophy a lot, they almost immediately have someone make a joke. Right. Yeah, there's heavy moments in this. Yes, and they, and they almost immediately follow a heavy moment with a joke. And I also really like, too, that even the ones that are normally funny are the comedic relief still get their chance to have heavy moments from time to time. Yes. Maya Rudolph in The Judge doesn't, but she is kind of a one-trick pony. But again, she's also one of those people that you know what you're going to get from her, and she does her thing. Yeah. I liked everybody in the show. Well, not everybody. We're not done talking about Kristen Bell, because Mike would not let us be done talking about Kristen Bell, but... <laughs> I'm not that obsessive. Let's talk about some of the other major characters on the show. The other star power of the show is Ted Danson. Cheers! Cheers! I've always liked Ted Danson, but I've always made a distinction between... There's a difference between being a great actor and a great performer. A great personality. A great personality, which could be a part of how some people, if you have a great personality, you can carry any type of a performance... Ted Danson's a great example of that to me. It doesn't hurt that he's a very good-looking man. He's a very good-looking man, but he is not a great actor. Like, I've recently been re-watching, separate from all this, I've recently been re-watching Cheers, which is, like, 30 years ago. And it's funny, exact same mannerisms, exact same delivery style. It's eerie how little he changes. So his acting style is always the same, but you know what you're going to get from him. He can command presence. He knows how to deliver lines and interact with people. He's a solid performer. He's just pure charisma, that guy. Yes. So he's great in this. And the reason it doesn't bother me, the fact that he's is also kind of a one-trick pony, is I don't see him as often. Yeah. I, I've seen Maya Rudolph so much in the last five, ten years. But Ted Danson, I see like in a brief spree like this show and then i won't see him for 20 years yeah he's been in other things that but that you that i don't yeah i don't watch it yeah and he's good in those other things too again i'm not trying to say he's not good but it's like to me he's a great performer kristen bell is a great actor and she's really a great everything well and the reason i say she's a great actor unlike any of the other people on the show is like there are times where her facial expressions alone are just phenomenal and tell stories on their own right and she when other people are doing things in a scene just her like body language and her reactions and her facial expressions are a skill that no one else on the show has and that's why it's like just another example of kristen bell is amazing i'm as gonna argue that okay i think uh i think darcy matches her Oh, it yes. actually goes beyond. We'll get to that when we talk about that character. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Darcy. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. character. She's the other incredible aspect of the show. But Ted Danson, first off. So he's basically he's the bad guy turned good guy. He, he's a demon. He's a fire squid. Six thousand foot tall fire squid. 
he is basically the bad guy turned good guy. He's a demon who's initially torturing them. He then joins their team because he realizes he's screwed because in the second season, after they, the first season, they figure out that they're actually in the bad place. The second season, he reboots them 802 times, meaning he erases their memory and tries again. And all 802 times it fails, they figure out that they're actually in the bad place. Then he realizes he's screwed, that he's going to be in trouble with his boss, and he doesn't want his boss to find out. And then he decides to join so-called Team Cockroach and actually work with the humans to try to save also his own skin. Uh, uh, Skin, because it's a skin suit. Because he's wearing a human skin suit, yes. The only nice twist on the bad guy turned good guy trope is that he, like the other characters on the show, is forced to study ethics which is also a funny angle that I'll come back to later because it's he doesn't really understand at all because he's an immortal demon, so he has a real hard time understanding why should I be good? What's the point of all this? I can fully understand the uh, confusion and the not understanding emotions. Yeah, I, I connect with that character. Because he gets very frustrated like early on with the, with the ethics lessons. He's like, searching for meaning is philosophical suicide. How does anyone do anything when you understand the fleeting nature of existence? Yeah, that's pretty much why I don't like getting out of bed in the morning. Yes, exactly. And as far as not understanding human emotions, that's the other thing that's pretty funny to him. He like he gets really mad at one point. It's like, you humans have so many emotions. You only need two, anger and confusion. And that's my basic state, anger and confusion. <laughs> So he becomes a very interesting character, and, and we'll come back to him, but let's just run maybe real quick through the other characters and then come back around. So we mentioned a few of them. Next up is, aside from Kristen Bell, the best performance on this show. Now, I hate myself for saying this, <gasps> but I actually, I think Janet Darcy Carden, I think she way outperforms Kristen Bell in this, but simply because Kristen Bell's character isn't that hard to portray. Kristen Bell didn't have to put a lot of acting into that character, other than, like you said, like the facial expressions, the mannerism side of it. But there wasn't really a lot of variance there. So for me, if you heard what I said about Kristen Bell in Veronica Mars, how just everything she did, I mean, it was like an acting class. She had to portray different characters all the time and do different things. Janet had to do that in this. And so, to me, I think uh, Darcy Carden, A, she just showed off how hilarious she is. Yes. But B, she showed off that she can act and she can do different characters in different ways, but still have that tie to the main character. And I think this show is just her showing off. And I really wish she got more credit for how good she was in this. I really hope we see her in more things. And I really hope she stays in comedy because, my God, she's funny. She's funny. She's remarkably talented. Her character does also get to evolve as the show goes on. But she starts out as basically, she's like a... I am simply an anthropomorphized vessel of knowledge built to make your life easier. She's like a, a living Alexa. She's basically, she's not a robot. She's also not a girl, which she says a lot. But she's this, this eternal entity that basically is the knower of all things. So she knows, like, everything that has ever happened. She also gets, like, constant updates as things are happening. Like, there's one actually funny time when they're actually down on Earth, Michael and Janet, 
monitoring the humans on their second run through life, and they're disconnected from their powers because they're not in the afterlife anymore. And at one point, Janet says, I didn't know the answer to something, and I had to ask Alexa. I feel so dirty. (laughs) Janet is also like Alexa in the sense that she's the personal assistant to all the residents of The Good Place. I summon her by saying, hey, Janet, and she just materializes out of nowhere. She's also like Alexa in the sense that she can deliver things to you because she can instantaneously retrieve or create any requested object. It's even faster than one-day delivery from Amazon, and you don't have to deal with any of those boxes piling up on your porch. She also acts as kind of an exposition engine for the show. She's a person who, like, exp- like when people like don't know what's going on, she kind of explains what's going on. A little bit also for the audience's benefit as well. She plays almost the entire series very straight. She's the straight man, comedy-wise. Right. But then when you get the different Janet, you get the bad Janet. That's a good question. It's up your mom's butt, you fat dink. Then when you get into the, like, disco Janet and stuff like that, man, she's just, she's so good in this. She is. And actually, the the show itself has, there are a lot of great episodes, but there were three Hugo Award-winning episodes, which Hugo Awards are for science fiction. One of the three episodes that won a Hugo Award was actually in season three, episode nine, there's actually an episode called The Janets. Is that when they go into her void? They go into her void, and everyone except for Michael, because he's not a human, when they go into her void, become they look like Janet. So in that episode, she plays all of the human characters perfectly. 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 Their mannerisms, their speech styles. Talk about her showing off. That is one of the episodes where it is as phenomenal how incredible she... And she actually gets to... It's great because she actually gets to play something other than just a regular straight man, as I said before. Mm-hmm. She actually gets to do some more acting, and it's brilliant. I, I really liked her up to that point, and I think that was the episode I fell in love with her. She is so good in that episode. She deserves all the awards. She does deserve all the awards. And I don't, I have some quotes of hers, which I'll come back around to later. The reason that I don't have more quotes or favorite lines from her is like almost everything she says is awesome. Mm-hmm. She's like, I mean, she is a scene stealing delight almost every time. Timing and delivering is perfect. Yes. If I tried to list out all of the moments, it would just go on for hours because, I mean, almost any scene that she's in. Is amazing. I, I really think without without Darcy as that character, this show would have flopped. Yeah, I was going to come to that as we went through the other characters. Well, I beat you. Yes, you did. The show would have been weaker without Kristen Bell. She definitely helps carry the show. I agree only to the fact that I think Kristen Bell brought the audience. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah. yeah. Kristen Bell and Ted Danson brought the audience. They might have been replaceable, but they brought the audience. So removing them from the show, it would be hard to evaluate it. The rest of the cast, again, not casting dispersions, but I don't think anybody else isn't replaceable except for Darcy Carden playing Janet. I mostly agree. As long as whoever else was cast had that chemistry. Because this cast had such good chemistry together. They had remarkable chemistry together. Outside of the show, if you ever saw them as a group do any interviews or anything, like it's obvious they love each other. Like yes. they they weren't just acting; like they really care about each other as people 
And that shows in the show and the way that they work together. Also shows because of the fact, other than Kristen Bell and, and Ted Danson, for the rest of the main cast, it was really the not the first thing that they've ever done, but one of their big break. Right. So it, it was it's it hugely is. emotional for the other members of the main cast. Now, it was the first thing that Tahani was in, isn't it? Yeah, because she had never even acted before, right. ever. And she did so good in this, too. Yes. Talk about gorgeous. Almost gave Kristen Bell a run for her money on that. Not that it's a comparison. Not that it's a comparison, but Kristen Bell does spend a great deal of the show just, like, gushing over how beautiful. We're talking about Jamila Jamil is the name of the actress, and Tahani Al-Jamil is the character that she plays on the show. So Tahani means congratulations in Arabic, and Al-Jamil means beautiful, so my full name altogether means... Congratulations, beautiful. Thanks, Helena. To be fair, again, Kristen Bell is playing the everyman, so right. everybody was just gushing over how gorgeous she was through the whole thing. Yes, but like it was a recurring joke, though, throughout right. the series that she kept like, she was like, at one point she's like, am I legit like hot for Tahani? <laughs> that should be a song. Somebody write that song. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, Jamila Jamil, that was the first time she had ever acted. And Somebody she, with talent. Yeah, someone with talent other <laughs> than us. not me. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to go there. She's an example, though, of a character. She was phenomenal, and she's very beautiful, but her character is relatively simple. She basically is yeah. the personification of selfish altruism. The person who does good so you can brag about it. Right. When we first meet her, until we, until we realize later in season one that she's also a human that's not supposed to be in the good place... It even confuses Kristen Bell's character. It's like, you raise like billions of dollars for charity. You're like a wicked good person. But that character only talks about herself and she name drops all the time. And she only did those things to get the attention for it and yes. to show that she's better than other people because how much good she was doing. Right. She's actually one of the characters who for a while repeatedly doesn't believe that she's in the bad place. It's like, I can't be in the bad place. I'm an incredible person. Right. There's no way I could be here. I don't deserve to be here. But at one point, when she finally admits that she has a problem, she says at one point, I want to become the person I pretended to be. So she does eventually acknowledge that she wasn't as good of a person as she pretended to be. And again, she's not a very relatable character because her character is uber rich, knows every celebrity in the world and constantly talks about things that only rich people would understand. And one of the things that comes around toward the end with her character, she basically born rich, never worked a day in her life, has no skills whatsoever. Her journey ends when they're in the real good place. She learns how to do everything herself. Yeah. And that again shows to the character on, okay, so she's been somebody that's so good at everything Etc. Even though she's never really done anything, but then they end it with, okay, she really is good at everything, and she's willing and wants to put in the work to be good at everything. Right, like she learns woodworking, she learns how to pave her own driveway, she learns like... I love that it was Nick Offerman that helped her learn how yes, to do woodworking. That was all, yes, Nick Offerman helping her was an awesome scene. And As somebody that likes to do woodworking, I yes. thought that was an excellent special <laughs> addition there. So her character... She's kind of there for eye candy and for easy jokes of the, 
I'm better than this, I don't belong here, or even struggles with trying to understand how to, what does she really need to do? Yeah. So there's not a lot of depth and dimensionality to the character, but she does play an important role. But congrats on the casting director to, for finding her and picking her out, because she did it, that, that, that was a gamble, and she did a great job. That was a gamble, and, and that and the other two people of the main cast that we're about to talk about is also a great, the diversity of the casting. We did not intentionally talk about the white people first. <laughs> we just so happened to talk about the three white actors first. That's not intended. But the rest of the main cast is a very diverse cast, so kudos for them for that. The next character that is arguably more important to the overall story is Chidi Elegane, who is played by William Jackson Harper. He's the moral philosophy professor. So he's kind of like the built-in plot device. He's the guy who teaches everybody ethics, and he's usually the main person that is the mouthpiece for the philosophy that permeates the entire show. Neither one of us had seen him in anything prior to this. We don't know how much of that is acting versus how much of that is his real, real person. But what I do know from seeing interviews is that Kristen Bell has been absolutely praising him for his acting ability, saying that she struggled with self-confidence acting alongside him and how good he was in everything that he had done. So if you're getting that kind of praise from Kristen Bell, who, in my opinion, is one of the best actors ever, holy crap, he must be doing something really, really good. Yeah, he has a very good presence. And he, again, a lot of his stuff is reactionary because he's reacting to other things that are happening. But he's the one who has to deliver some of the harder philosophical concepts and sound like a professor. And he accomplishes that perfectly. Say big words. Pronounce difficult names. Exactly. But again, he's not a terribly relatable character. He's book smart. Aristotelian? Aristotelian, Aristotelian virtue Aristotelian. ethics? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he can enunciate, but his character is book smart, but he's also plot device or archetype. He's the all theory view on moral philosophy. He's the person who knows all the books, has read all of the theories, but like he has like no practical sense. Like he's a completely indecisive overthinker in his day-to-day -day life. He can't even make, like, simple choices. I connect to that, too. <laughs> <laughs> he was also one of those characters that comes the closest to, why is he in the bad place? Because he doesn't really do a lot of bad things. It's just that his indecisiveness basically drives everybody crazy in his human life, and that negatively affects a lot of people. But he never really did anything Bad. Like, he keeps joking that when they realize that they're in a bad place, he keeps saying, oh, I know I'm in a bad place. I kept drinking almond milk, even though I knew about the negative environmental impacts. And people will keep going, that's not why you're here. <laughs> now, I, I, I have often sat still listening to my stomach growl for hours because I can't decide what to eat. Anybody else? Anybody else on that train? Can't make those decisions? As you're covering in the microphone because you don't want the chewing sounds to come over. Because <laughs> I'm eating a snack while we're recording. Because I'm professional at that. And I can't decide what to snack on. I have the opposite problem. I snack even when I'm not hungry. It doesn't get old, but they do beat that drum a lot with him in terms of him inability to make a, a, even a simple decision between two things. Which then also comes into 
why it was such a big deal when he just flat out turned to Eleanor and said, I love you. Because that's he's never been able to be so sure of something. And they, that's Was that in season three? Well, Eleanor finds out about it in season two. Chidi doesn't find out about it in season three because it's one of those weird things. Every time they get rebooted, they lost their memory. Right. But then when he gets his memory back and everything, that's, I mean, they kind of come back to that. Like, yeah, I've never been so sure of something. I've never been so confident in anything in my entire life. This is something I don't need to debate. And that's, I, I like how they did that. How they, they made the most indecisive person actually like, yeah, this is it. And his indecisiveness also made not only others around him miserable, but himself too. Cause at like at one point, I can relate on that too. <laughs> when they're when they're on Earth during their reboot of getting their second chance, and that he does temporarily, just like all of the characters, try to be better, and he's very briefly decisive, and then things unravel. But before they unravel, he's talking to one of his friends. He's like, "I haven't been this happy since." Oh wow! I've never been happy, huh? Bad. <laughs> So, like, he, like, freaks out when he realizes he's never been happy. <laughs> yeah, that's understandable, too. To be fair, though, it's pretty easy to be certain you're in love with Kristen Bell. Yes. You know, I had told myself I wasn't going to turn this into a love letter to Kristen <laughs> Bell. <laughs> Actually, correlating it back to this, she seems to be a genuinely good person in a world full of semi-good to bad people doesn't want there to be any pain and misery in the world, so she does everything she possibly can to help other people avoid it. Whereas this character, though, sees that and goes, eh, not my problem, which is what most of us do, which is why we all deserve to go to hell. Yes, we take the path of least resistance, which is what her character does most often. But again, it's relatable. It still right. comes back to me. It's like, it's not, oh, she sucks. I'm a much better person than that character. Eh, you're lying to yourself, viewers, if you thought that. You, you should probably see more of yourself. Again, it's a it's an extreme characterization, yeah. but it's still a more realistic portrayal. I mean, I can count more than one time where I've had something happen nearby, and my first thought is, isn't, I hope that person's okay. It's, God, I hope I don't have to do CPR. <laughs> so far, I haven't had to. I had to instruct one person once how to do it properly while they were doing it. I used to teach people how to do CPR, but that's a whole different thing. Anyways, back to the show. We're going to come back around to that concept later, because one of the things that the show actually comes up with is, is addressing a lot about what we're just saying right there. But let's go back to the other main character before we loop back around. His character's name is Jason Mendoza. The actor is Manny Jacinto. I think that's how you pronounce his not last name. I'm not sure. So sorry, Manny, if we pronounce your name wrong. Again, he's another one of those, I'm not sure if he's been in other things. I don't know. This is the only thing I've seen him in recently, at least. Same as these. He did a great job. I loved the Jason character. Probably the easiest replaceable main character. Oh, yeah. I mean, again, I applaud the diversity. They have a, a Filipino actor. I even love the fact that he even makes a joke because on the show, when he's in The Good Place, they have him as a, a Taiwanese monk. And he's like, that's kind of racist. Everyone <laughs> thinks I'm Taiwanese. <laughs> but Jason Mendoza is the character. And he's basically immature. He's an impulsive dumbass from Florida. I don't know how I got here. I have no idea what's going on. And I am freaking out, homie. Literally the dumbest person I've ever met. But he's also kind-hearted. He's a dumbass, but he's kind-hearted. 
but he is most often just used for cheap, silly laughs. And his go-to is Molotov cocktails. Yes, blowing stuff up. Yes. So <laughs> there's that. In his life experience, most things eventually blow up. <laughs> Usually because he hucks a Molotov cocktail at them. <laughs> I guess I can kind of connect to that as far as that's how I wish things ended. They beat the drum almost consistently throughout the entire series that, again, something serious or heavy will happen and he'll do something dumb. At one point, Eleanor, Kristen Bell's character, is like, I feel like you always understand only about 20% of what's happening. And his response is, thanks, man. <laughs> <laughs> the other really favorite part of, for me, for, for Jason, because he's such a dumbass character, at the beginning of season two, Michael reboots the scenario that he's torturing them in 802 times. And most of the time, Eleanor's the one who figures it out. But there's one time... I think we're in the bad place. Jason figured it out? Yeah, this one hurts. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing that they play on a lot is every now and then, he'll use like a ridiculous example. Like he'll start telling a story that it's like, no, dude, no, 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 no. But somehow it actually encompasses what they're trying to do and say. It's, it uses weird examples from his weird life in Florida, but the like the core point or the moral of his story is correct. Like at one point when they're arguing in front of the judge, Chidi steps up and starts doing like a philosophy thing. He's like, oh no, I got this dog. And he goes off on this really weird story. And they're like, and Eleanor's like, oh, we're screwed. We're going to hell. Nice to know you, everybody. But somehow it makes sense. He actually does understand it enough and convinces people. So every now and then he gets one to do one of those profound dumbassery speeches. Now, as somebody that actually does kind of like to act, I think that character would be the most fun to play. Well, it's usually in a lot of shows, which is another side tangent, why I really love the fact that Lisa Kudrow was a guest star in season four. On Friends, there were two dumbass characters. One of them was played by Lisa Kudrow. Lisa Kudrow, in real life, is remarkably intelligent, but she is also a great example of playing a dumbass is not as easy as people think it is. Oh, yeah, it's not. And you have to be real. And she was a great example of her comedic timing was awesome in Friends. And for her to play an idiot is a stretch because she is genuinely an incredibly intelligent person. Side note on her. Mm hmm. She actually, when she was up and coming, took improv lessons with Conan O'Brien. They were in the same class together and became very good friends and hung out with each other in that class. Did not know that. Her appearance was actually kind of funny. Like, because at one point, Michael was trying to argue the cast of Friends with the judge. And he basically talks himself into everybody should go to hell, except for Phoebe. And then like two <laughs> episodes later, Phoebe, Lisa Kudrow, is on the show. She actually plays an ancient Greek philosopher. And she's pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Jason is the dumbass. The one thing I liked about the Jason character, though, is that everything was simple for him. Yes. Like while everybody else made everything complex for him, everything was simple and easy and clear. Obviously, it's because he didn't understand. But at the same time, look at how much he enjoyed life by just going with the flow and not making things complicated. And I think... Well, I'm not saying you should be like Jason, <laughs> but I think that's kind of a, a good thing to keep in the back of your head where sometimes it's okay to just go with the flow and enjoy things because if you're making everything complicated all the time, life is going to suck. Yes. 
Look at Chidi. Yeah, because actually at one point, Chidi is struggling, no surprise, with a decision. And he goes to Jason for advice. And Jason's like, almost everything I did on Earth, I did without thinking or worrying about what would happen. (laughs) Now, a lot of that didn't turn out well. Because at one point when Jason is talking to Michael, he's like, Michael's talking about his primary problem is that he's impulsive. He doesn't think at all. He just acts. Michael tries to tell him that. And Jason's like, so you're saying wanting to do something isn't a good reason to immediately do it? Jason's like, I wish someone on Earth had taught me this. And Michael's like, many people did. Most of them were judges. (laughs) What I also really liked about that character, at at the end of the, the fourth season was basically... All of them trying to come to turn, like finish up whatever it was that made them feel complete. Tahani was learning everything, how to do everything. And Chidi was, you know, wanting to read all of the books. He had finished philosophy and then he was going to like, okay, let's look at fiction. You know, let's look at other things. Jason's thing was he wanted to play the perfect game of Madden. Yes. It doesn't get more simple than that. And again, as somebody that likes video games, I fully understand how frustrating that can be. Like, I just want to do the one thing. And it only took him 430,000 tries before he was able to play the perfect game of Madden. Was that tries or Baramis? I think it was tries. Okay. Bortles! <laughs> there was another part, too, where Bad Janet had infiltrated. <laughs> and Jason was the one that figured it out. Yes. Because they called her girl, and she didn't immediately say not a girl. Yes. Well, everybody else was completely fooled by this. Right. He caught on to that and was like, oh, you're not the real Janet. My favorite part of that character is actually the very last thing that happens with him. And where, you know, through the whole thing, he keeps going back to being that Buddhist monk or portraying that Buddhist monk. And at the end, he says something that's like really profound. And uh, <laughs> Janet's like, Oh, that's very monk-like of you. He goes, what's a monk? Yeah. <laughs> so those are the four core humans, Eleanor Shellstrop, Chidi Evigonye, Tahani Aljamil, and Jason Mendoza. And those are the ones that we basically follow throughout the show. The immortal creatures or immortal beings are Michael and Janet as the demon and then the knower of all things. And those, are the, those six people form the core cast of the show. To circle back around to one of those plot developments, during season two, even Michael is taking ethics lessons. So he's working with them to try to become better people, to try to get them into the good place. And they're teaching him a little bit about ethics. And one of the best episodes, and again, another one of the Hugo Award-winning episodes, is called The Trolley Problem. And this is season two, episode five. It's a classic philosophical conundrum where you imagine you're riding on a trolley, And ahead on the train tracks, you're going to barrel into and kill three people. You can't stop the train, but you can throw a switch that will make the train veer off onto another track where it will run over and kill one person. So it's a mathematical of good or bad actions. It's like, is it better to kill three people or is it better to kill one? Seems like it would be better to kill one person because that's less than three. And then they play the variations of what if it's like the one person is someone you know and love versus three strangers. So they play various different... Well, that and it's also an exercise of, is it better or worse to kill three people by not acting or kill one person by acting? Yes, there's lots of different layers to it. But as they're going through this and they're talking it out, Michael gets completely frustrated, which is also a meta layer about 
as they say throughout the series, this is why everyone hates moral philosophy professors. It's a theoretical exercise. So Michael's like, let's actually make this real. And they're on a real trolley barreling down a hill and they actually run over repeatedly run over real people and the blood just comes splashing up on Chidi. It's an award-winning episode, but it's also one of the only times that they made a tangible real-world scenario out of a philosophical problem. Now, what I really liked about that is they kept coming back to it and that like throughout the whole series. And for me, when the first time I heard about them, like it's it's easy. You kill the one person. Like there is no philosophical if ands or buts about it. You take an action, you kill the one person, you deal with it because you just saved three. And I like how at the end, when the philosopher that came up with it was like, no, it's easy. You just kill the one person. (laughs) (laughs) Also, the the thing I liked about that episode as well, it was, again, the underlying meta layer of Chidi's character, the all theory, no practice. And they made that a real scenario because I think that this is another thing that the show also addresses more later is a lot of people who think that they're a good person, who, who might actually even be a good person, have not had to deal with real life moral dilemmas. Right. It's easy to say that you're good on paper. Like in principle, you could say, I think I'm a good person. But most people's lives are so relatively mundane you're not going to be faced with true moral conundrums right? where you will be tested to see whether or not you're a good person. A good example of this. Actually, I'm going to swing it back to South Park again. That's okay. <laughs> so there was uh, quite a few years back, there was a big thing about a woman that had been injured and was basically in a vegetative state. And there's the big question on whether or not to pull the plug. And South Park did an episode on that. And the South Park joke of it was like they were going back and forth on everything And the joke at the end was she had written in her will, for the love of God, if anything like this happens, do not show me on TV. And like through the whole thing, there's like news crews there showing her on TV in that state. So that was the South Park joke of it. But that ethical thing is, is it better to stay alive in a vegetative state or pull the plug and make the sacrifice? I think that is a great real world philosophical choice that you can only make at that time with the given information there. I agree with that. But like a lot of other people like saying, oh yeah, if I was walking down the street and I passed an alleyway and a woman was being attacked, obviously I run over there and help her. It's easy to say that, but would you? Yeah, it's easy to say that. But in that situation, are you just going to create a second victim? Right. Nowadays we have cell phones and we can call 911. So it's not the same as it used to be in the past where by the time you ran to a payphone or something and tried to call the police, the person would be dead. Yeah. But, but a lot of people will say stuff like that. But even like, even taking it down to like a lower level, like you see an instance, a blatant instance of sexual harassment in the workplace. Do you go to HR and report it? That's a good example. It's still a moral conundrum, but it's not on a level of someone's getting murdered. But I mean, I'm going to take that another step and say, you see that sexual harassment, the obvious sexual harassment, even though the victim doesn't seem to care, obviously that behavior should stop. The victim isn't going to report it because the victim doesn't really care. So they're not victimized, but they're still a victim. Do you take that step to take it to HR and stop it before that spreads to people that will be offended or be hurt by it? Or it escalates to an actual sexual assault. Right, exactly even lesser moral conundrums where there appears to be no real victim. Like 
You see people taking printer cartridges and pens and paper from the supply closet. Yeah. Should you report them to HR? It's like, well, who's really being hurt? The company paid for those supplies. That's okay. But still, so people, I think, you say, oh, I'm a good person, but they'll run into even these like lesser moral conundrums on a daily basis and probably not even think about them at all and just keep on walking and not do anything. Or like, I'm starving. It's illegal to pull this piece of bread out from the dumpster, but I'm going to do it anyway because I'm starving. Yeah, you're breaking the law. You're breaking rules. But do the rules really apply at that point? Or you're we're rushed for your lunchtime and you're eating on the go. You're eating a sandwich and halfway through it, you say, I don't want the rest of this. You walk by a homeless person. Do you give them the, the half of the sandwich or do you just throw it in the trash can? Do you get mad at that homeless person for ripping off the parts you bit off of before eating the sandwich? <laughs> these are the questions we need answers to. Please answer these questions while we get off of this tangent and get back to the show. <laughs> but the reason I dwell on this a little bit is it, it does come around at the end of the show. One of the things that they figured out and proved to the judge is that the that the fundamental system by which the afterlife determines whether you belong in the good place or the bad place is fundamentally flawed for several reasons, which we'll get into. But one of the arguments is that people never get a chance to take a real test. Well, on top of that, too, the way it was set up, I mean, say, again, take that trolley problem. Mm -hmm. you, you let it go. You kill the three people. You get negative points for killing three people. Right. You do what I would think would be the better decision. You throw the switch and you kill the one person. Mm -hmm. Well, you get negative points because you killed the one person. So it was a no-win situation where everything you did still had negative consequences, so you got negative points. It was a no-win situation. Right. And that also comes back around in another angle, too. One of the things that they come to before they figure out that the entire system is fundamentally flawed, one of the things that Tahani actually says at one point is, every time I do something nice, it backfires. There are so many unintended consequences to even well-intentioned actions it feels like a game you can't win. And that's at one point where they figure out that because the world is so complicated, even like regular like mundane tasks like buying a tomato lost you points because the farm where that tomato was grown used pesticides and they mistreat their migrant workers. So you lose a bunch of points, but like, like all you did was buy a tomato. Right. So there are things where people were getting penalized for without knowing that there were these negative consequences. So to sum up this entire show is human existence is terrible and sucks, and I do not recommend it. <laughs> Although one of my favorite lines from the judge, Maya Rudolph's character, is when they first bring that aspect to her, that complex, interconnected nature of, of everyday life means that people are getting negative points even if they're trying to do good things. She's like, so your big revelation is life is complicated. That's not a revelation. That's a divorced woman's throw pillow. So in other words, like, no shit. Life is complicated. Ignorance is no defense. Later in the show, they say that not only they show other examples of why it's even people who seem to be doing ridiculously good things on Earth are not getting into the good place. And it's actually revealed at one point that no one has gotten into the good place for over 521 years. And you can think of on your own, are really virtuous people who have existed over the last five-plus centuries. None of them were getting into the good place because of the point system. So towards the end of the show, they redesign it to 
that when you die, you actually do take a test. They do create a test tailored to you where you are specifically put in those moral conundrums that you may not have had a chance to face in real life. And then to determine whether or not if you pass that test and prove that you're a good person, then you can get into the good place, which ends up being a better system. Do you think the last person that got into the good place that feels guilty about it? Or is it going, whew, made that cut? <laughs> Before we cycle back around, I did want to call out at least a few of the other supporting actors. We already briefly talked about the judge played by Maya Rudolph. One of the other supporting characters that I really like He's, again, one of those actors. I didn't know his name. I looked up his name, but I knew who it was. I've seen the guy. He's a character actor. The actor's name is Mark Evan Jackson. He's a great character actor. I've seen him in a lot of things. Never knew his name, but he's very good at being a character actor. He plays Sean, like the head demon, who's Michael's boss. And he is great in all things he's in at deadpan delivery. And he nails the deadpan delivery of, of the Sean character very well. Yeah, yeah, he did great. That was perfect casting, perfect portrayal for that character. Mm -hmm. And I even really like at the end when he started developing good feelings, and but he refused to, <laughs> to acknowledge it. But he just kind of gave those little... Little facial expressions. Yes, he, he, he was having a hard time acknowledging it. And then even... Well, never, as ever, 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 ever admit that. <laughs> so yes, he does something exactly like that. <laughs> the other thing that is hilarious is towards the end of the show, he actually becomes, I mean, the entire afterlife, they basically all become, the demons even get repurposed to be good guys, so to speak, helping the humans get better. So even then, he's like, come back around to the good side. So he would say things and they would be menacing. He's like, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't stop saying this. So he like would say supportive things in that like menacing tone and he would keep trying to re-say it and it yes, kept come up. Yeah. And we will all be better off. <laughs> yeah, so that kept coming up. I was like, sorry, can't get out of that. Some of, some of his lines, again, one-liners, but they were funny to me. It's like, I took the form of a 40-year-old white man for a reason. I can only fail up. <laughs> yeah. can't argue that my all-time favorite lines they just made this great argument to the judge for why the system that is evaluating humans and putting them all in the bad place is fundamentally flawed sean i have reason to believe that humans might be on average better than the point system suggests they are counterpoint humans are terrible limp biscuit slavery the prosecution rests. Gotta say, that's a solid rebuttal. Pretty compelling yeah, argument. That is, that's, that, that wins right there. Case closed. Don't need a jury on that one. We're, we're good to go. Even Limp Biscuit hates Limp Biscuit. Yeah. <laughs> they also do reveal that the demons are torturing humans because they feel it is their moral imperative to punish the humans for being evil. They're part of the machinery of the afterlife. It just so happens they enjoy their job. They just happen to enjoy their job a lot. And I like how they wrap it around at the end, how the bad place architects work with the good place architects to create situations to really test them. Yes. And I also like how Tahani ended up becoming an architect. An architect's apprentice. Yes. There were other great supporting characters that I enjoyed, but the one I wanted to call out is 
Kirby Howell Baptiste is the name of the actress. She plays Simone. Her character is very good. She's mostly in season three and the beginning of season four. But she gets a really great speech that I like that's actually in season three. As humans evolved, the first big problem we had to overcome was me versus us. Learning to sacrifice a little individual freedom for the benefit of a group, like sharing food and resources so we don't starve or get eaten by tigers. The next big problem to overcome was us versus them, trying to see other groups different from ours as equal. That one we're still struggling with. That's why we still have racism and nationalism. I would argue we're still struggling with both of those issues, but that's, again, another podcast. That's another podcast, too, but I, I like that they got that in there as another piece of, not philosophy, but this was, she's a neuroscientist, but she was also just giving the individual versus the group, because that was one of the other underlying themes of the show, was that they argued that they got better because they were helping each other. Becoming good was not an individual effort, or even doing better just for yourself was not really either the easiest or even the correct path to being good. And coming together and, and helping each other was a big part of the show. There are other characters. I want to come back to Mindy St. Clair in a minute, but uh, were there any other supporting characters that stood out for you? The secondary demon, the one that was always like fighting against Michael. Vicky! Yeah. Oh, she yes. She did great. That was a great character. She portrayed it great. I really liked her as well. I'm probably not pronouncing your name correctly. I'm sorry. But the actress's name is Taya Sarkar. I've actually seen her in other things, but she is fantastic in this show as well. One of the other concepts on the show that I wanted to mention is the medium place. So this is a, something that comes up repeatedly over the course of the entire series. But even Eleanor, when she first shows up in The Good Place, when she realizes that she shouldn't be there, she makes the argument that, yeah, I'm not a good person, but I'm not a horrible person either. There should be some type of like medium place mm -hmm. for people who aren't good, but aren't terrible. And it actually is revealed that there actually is at least one medium place and one person living there. And that is Mindy St. Clair, the actor, actress who plays her is Maribeth Monroe. And she was served up even as early as the first season as a conundrum for the existing system at that time. The character embezzled millions of dollars from her company, got high on cocaine, and overdosed and died. But before she died, she took the money that she embezzled and she created a charity that after her death went on to do great things worldwide. So the judge ended up saying, it's like, yeah, you were a terrible person, but you accidentally created something that did a whole bunch of good. So they give her the medium place where she has to live by herself, basically in eternal mediocrity. That sounds so nice. Like, so like she gets to drink her favorite beer, but it's always warm. The only thing that she can watch on TV is the sequels to movies, like Cannonball Run 2. <laughs> and she's all by herself. So the medium place was not torture. It wasn't terrible. But she also didn't have a Janet to get her anything she wanted. Like every time they show up at the medium place asking for her help, it's like, did you remember to bring cocaine this time? Last time I told you when you come here, bring cocaine. 
our memory keeps getting erased. We don't remember what you told us last time. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just sitting here thinking of loopholes. I'm like, I mean, yeah, it, it would suck to have everything be so mediocre, but don't have to deal with people. So that's nice. Yeah, arguably they don't spend enough time dwelling on what more made her existence mediocre. I think part of it was that yeah, she's completely alone, but that's not, again... The but she people. enjoyed that part. <laughs> she enjoyed that part. So, yeah, again, so, but yeah, they didn't really dwell too much on what made it the medium place, other than it wasn't the good place and it wasn't the bad place. She's a character they, they keep coming back to repeatedly over the course of the series. They do a really nice thing with her, though, in season four, I think maybe even the next to last episode, where Eleanor goes to visit her, and this, this ties into the Tahani thing that you were talking about earlier. Eleanor, before she decides if her time in the afterlife is over, she goes to see Mindy because she feels like she needs to help her. Eleanor says to Mindy, I think that you're actually a version of me if I had never met my friends. You're like the worst case scenario of what I could have become if I continued to live my life. Gotten back to one of the underlying fundamental themes of the show. She says, there is a greater happiness waiting for you if you form bonds with other people. So she's trying to convince Mindy that you need other people and those bonds can actually make you happy. Overrated. Mindy actually gets almost teary-eyed and then they go to meet Tahani and Tahani says, when you're ready, Mindy, I'll be the one who decides your test that you can take to get into the good place. Because she didn't trust anybody else to design it. She didn't trust anybody else to design it. And she, she, uh, she even wasn't even sure if she even wanted to. But it's like, if I decide to take the test, I want someone I trust. And they bring her to Tahani. But as Eleanor and Mindy are leaving to bring Mindy back to her medium place, she actually turns to Eleanor and says, thanks for giving a crap about me. I don't really give a crap about myself. So it's nice that someone does. So it was a bittersweet, but a nice bringing it full circle of maybe Mindy really wasn't happy being all alone. Maybe being on your own isn't a good answer. Because even at one point, in another completely different part of the show, when they're back on Earth and Chidi is struggling with whether or not he should help the humans that are trying to learn to be better people, and he's really, as he always is, struggling with the decision, Michael actually says to him, Sometimes when you're feeling helpless, the secret is to help someone else. And again, that theme comes back around again, that if you're just being good for your own selfish purposes, like I want to be good so I can get into the good place so I can go have all the rewards of paradise, like you had said before, that's your motivation. Kind of argue that you're not really a good person. Right. Because even Chidi, in this case, they blended it into like the end of season two where Eleanor is going to go to Australia, which, which is where Chidi teaches philosophy, and decides whether or not she wants to go there. We see him giving a three-hour lecture on a YouTube video. She watches the whole thing. At the end of it, the thing that Chidi says in his speech is, I argue that we choose to be good because of our bonds with other people. Simply put, we are not in this alone. Again, that recurring theme throughout the show Michael keeps trying to get the four humans together because that was the thing that they accidentally stumbled upon in the original experiment, that when these four people help each other, they all individually get better. 
again, that goes into the thing that's always plagued me in my mind is besides the just, am I a good person? Am I not a good person? Is, is being a good person just something that you are? Is it something you work on? Is it nature versus nurture? It all kind of circles around those same things in my head. Because I know people that just aren't good people that it wouldn't really matter what situation they were in. They're just not good people. And I know people that are just good people. And more often than not, there's people in between that as this show commonly shows people that think they're good people that aren't good people, but they don't understand why they're not good people. And I I think this show really that's if I were to bring it all down to one thing, I think it's that is even if you think you're a good person, you're probably not. And you should probably try to figure out what that thing that makes you not a good person is and maybe try to work on that. I could see that. One of the other ways, the group dynamic and what we owe to each other, which is actually, we're going to come back to that. That's actually the name of a real life book that is actually very important to the philosophy of the show. There is an episode in season two, episode nine, it's actually called Best Self. So they go back to more of the individual aspect of this. One of the other things on the show is talking about how to become the best version of yourself. So that there is something you can do at the individual level or to assess people at the individual level about whether or not they are good. And that is something that is a big part of of that episode in terms of trying to determine if people actually are good. And in that episode, Chidi actually toasts Michael and says, you are definitely the best version of yourself. Granted, the bar was low because you're a demon, but he made a mistake and he admitted he was wrong, which makes him better than 90% of all humans. (laughs) That also, that idea, which comes up in other characters too, about the fact that sometimes we just can't even admit, we know we've made a mistake, but we can't admit it. Maybe not, maybe to ourselves, but definitely not to other people. And there is something that you have to figure out at, at sort of trying to become the best version of yourself being honest with yourself in terms of whether or not you did the right thing or or are capable of doing the right thing. Does that mean I'm a good person because I know I'm wrong all the time and I openly admit it? Maybe. (laughs) I really expected you to tell me I'm a terrible person right there. Self-awareness can be a curse as much as it is a blessing. You don't say. (laughs) And I I, I myself have have, have felt that way throughout my life. It's like I've I've often lamented the lack of self-awareness that other people appear to have because they seem to be, at least outwardly, I mean, I have no idea what's going on inside their head. Outwardly, they do not appear to be self-aware enough to know how their words and actions are affecting other people and don't seem to be concerned about that. Whereas I have an overabundance of self-awareness and I'm usually too hard on myself because I think I have fallen short. And I, I have a tendency to be, I'm also a very negative person, as this podcast shows, that I often look at only the negative aspects right. and don't even... Isn't it the worst when you leave a situation and realize afterwards that you did something shitty and you don't stop thinking about it for 30 years? <laughs> yes. But it goes back to a point that Michael made at one point during the show. What matters isn't if people are good or bad. What matters is trying to be better today than you were yesterday. Maybe you fucked up 30 years ago and there's nothing you can do about that. 
but are you actively trying to be a better person today than you were then or yesterday? I don't know. I was pretty awesome yesterday. <laughs> That's a high bar. <laughs> but that whole point of cut yourself some slack, there's always an opportunity to improve. And if you focus on try to do something today that improves a little bit more about maybe what you've done in the past. And again, the show doesn't really give us a lot of examples of characters that have fucked up so bad that they're irredeemable. So everybody on this show has a legitimate chance of getting better because they haven't done something like murdering someone that is just irredeemable. Didn't that come up at one point, though, where they talk about, is everybody redeemable? Did they bring up Kylo Ren? They did not bring up Kylo Ren. Brent is the only character that the show ever really had. He was on the show briefly for the first half of season four. He was the one, I think, that they put all of that on him. Right, right, right. But I'm not talking about that. I'm t- like, I think may- maybe I read into it, but I think there was a part where they were talking about like how to design a test or something like that, mm-hmm. where they bring up is like, can everybody go through it? Are there people that just won't be able to, we know they won't pass because they're terrible people. Is there, is everybody redeemable? Is everybody able to? They skate past it fast, but yeah, there was at one point where they said, you know, if you score really horribly, you're just going to the bad. Again, they didn't really dwell on it much for the entire series, but there is a brief acknowledgement of there are some people that are so bad. We're not going to bother. Again, murderers, rapists, people who talk during movies. Maybe it would have been nice if they addressed this at some point, but for the most part, they just simplified it by staying away from that argument altogether. Even when they're trying to talk about that final system that they come up with, they kind of just stay away from it. Other than they briefly do say at one point, it's like, if you score like negative points, you belong in the bad place. But they do kind of set it up, but like almost everybody gets a chance to take the test. Based on that premise that I said before, most people will never face true moral conundrums or moral dilemmas in their life. So we need to really test them. I think if you've failed miserably in life, if you're like a serial killer. Right. But they don't talk about that. But I think it might have just been implied that, yes, there are some people who are irredeemable. But that's not what this show is focused on. The reason I keep coming back to Brent is, for me, he's the only time that the show dedicated a significant amount of time to kind of sort of this question. Yeah. Because he's a complete douchebag who is completely not self-aware. He's a total asshole that treats everybody like shit. Yes, he's not a murderer, but he's a fucking bad person. Right. And they do spend the first half of season four, they're struggling to try to get this guy to be a better person, and he just won't. Uh, He's that guy that goes on a nature walk and just leaves trash everywhere on the way. Pick up your damn trash! (laughs) That's a pet peeve of Mike's. But one of the things in that scenario where they even tried all sorts of different things, they tried lying to Brent and telling him that there was actually a best place and only the best people in the good place would get there. Maybe he can get into the best place. They tried all sorts of different scenarios. And in the end, in that because that experiment scientifically made sense when they were trying to argue that the system had to be changed, Sean, the head demon, says... Well, how do we know that these four random humans weren't just like the only humans in existence who would ever be able to get better? And it's like, okay, right. we'll, we'll rerun the experiment with four other people. And Brent is one of the people that they include. And of the four people in that uh, experiment, he was the only one 
who did not improve. He actually got worse, didn't he? Negative one point. And Sean tries to say, look, this proves that it's wrong. But they did a deep dive into his numbers. And at the very end of his time in the fake good place, he had this huge surge of good points that got him up to negative one. But he was like way the hell down there. <laughs> Because at the very end, as the experiment was about to end, he realized he actually had a, a moment of self-awareness as of, I'm a piece of shit. And he turns to Chidi and he starts to completely apologize. And then the experiment freezes because they ran out of time. But they did show, yeah, he did get worse, but he was turning the corner. He's also shown later in season four of he's still stuck in the test because he's still taking the test because they walk by like a monitor and he's on the screen. It's like, if I tell a girl to smile because it'll make her look prettier, what if she actually is prettier when she smiles? Is it wrong for me to tell her to smile? <laughs> <laughs> so he's like still struggling with learning the lessons that they're trying to teach him in the test scenario of how to become a better person. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> The Jeremy Barramy. <laughs> I'm a big Doctor Who fan, so I'm a big fan of the timey-wimey. Yeah, I can't separate those. Now it's Jeremy Barramy, timey-wimey. Season 3, Episode 4. It's the other Hugo Award-winning episode that we have not mentioned yet. How is it possible that all these things happened to us, but no time passed on Earth? Did you go back in time to save us? Uh, I didn't have to because of Jeremy Barramy. Who's Jeremy Barramy? Okay. Things in the afterlife don't happen while things are happening here. Because while time on Earth moves in a straight line, one thing happens, then the next, then the next. Time in the afterlife moves in a Jeremy Barramy. What? In the afterlife, time doubles back and loops around and ends up looking something like the name Jeremy Barramy in cursive English. So that's what we call it. Can events happen before the ones that happened before? Just the way it works. It's Jeremy Barramy. That's the easiest way to describe it. Okay, but, um, what the hell is this? The dot over the eye. The hell is that? How do I explain this concisely? This is Tuesdays and also July. And sometimes it's never. That's true. Occasionally, that moment on the Barami timeline is the time moment when nothing never occurs. So, you get it. This broke me. Uh, the dot over the eye. That broke me. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the whole idea that they also come back to later of how they can run infinite scenarios that go across hundreds of years, but don't really, a lot of time doesn't actually right. pass on Earth. And then the end, the end, when they're talking about how much time has passed, it's how many Baramies. Yes, exactly. Which I thought was pretty cool, but it's like how many Baramies have passed. The other concept before we dive towards the, the closing concepts is the Soul Squad. So Team Cockroach is what they're known in the good place, the fake good place, when they're trying to find a way to earn their way into the real good place. And then they get put back on Earth. Their memories get erased again by Michael, and they pick up their lives from where they were. But Michael and the demons are actually working behind the scenes. The demons are trying to sabotage them. Michael and Janet are trying to get them together. Because again, the four of them, when they get together, somehow manage to get better, despite all the odds. 
Janet and Michael realize that it failed and they're about to basically go back to the judge and give up. And the group accidentally sees them open up a portal to the afterlife, as well as overhears Janet and Michael talking about the entire point system, that they didn't earn enough points, they're not going to get into the good place, you know, blah, 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 blah. And they're like, what the hell's going on? And then Michael and Janet get even more depressed because they're like, crap, you just heard how the afterlife works. So now, even if you do good things, you're not going to earn points anymore because now you know how the system works. You would only be doing good things in order to try to get into the good place, which would negate the motivation. So then did this series just fork all of us? No, because it comes back around again. But the interesting thing, that's where they decide to call themselves the Soul Squad. And Eleanor comes up with this idea. So, okay, we're forked. We're going to the bad place. Even doing good isn't going to matter because we know that that's how the system works. So let's just use what time we have left on Earth to do good for the sake of doing good. Let's help other people get into the good place. So they become the soul squad where they know we're forked. But they then go around, they try to help Eleanor's mother. They try to help Jason's dad and his best friend and some other people because it's like, like try to make the world a better place, even though it's not going to do us any good. Geeky tangent. Sorry. I read a lot about Buddhist philosophy, which also comes back around in the end. In Buddhist philosophy, there is the concept between an arhat and a bhashivata. An arhat roughly translates to something like a saint. And a bhashivata is like a spiritual warrior. A parable from Buddhism that explains the difference between those two. Imagine two people wandering lost in the desert. They come across this giant wall that they climb up to the top of. They look over the top, and on the other side of the wall is paradise. One of the guys jumps over the wall and enters paradise. That is an arhat, someone who has, in the case of Buddhism, done the work necessary to earn nirvana. So the arhat accepts the gift of nirvana. The bhashivata climbs down from the wall and spends the rest of his life wandering around the desert, sacrificing their personal happiness to spend all of their time helping other people by letting them know, not only is there a good place you can get to, I'm going to help you get there. Did he build a ladder? No. (laughs) But that's what they become when they become the Soul Squad. Hold on, hold on. I'm not done yet. How high was that? Well, like, did the guy break his legs when he jumped over? It's (laughs) terrible! I'm just making sure I picture, like, why didn't he just, like, break down the wall? Or, like, drill a hole through it? Get a tunnel going? It's a parable! But it is the parable that they're basically... I mean, they don't spend a lot of time. They only spend a couple of episodes on this before they get busted by the judge. What they're doing there is, again, we're screwed. It doesn't even matter. Coming back a little bit to what you were saying before, if you're only doing good because you think you're going to get something out of it, then aren't you not really a good person because your motivations are selfish? Could he have stayed on the top of the wall and just shouted to people as they came by? I am in the bad place <laughs> being tortured by Mike. Hey, Eleanor, help me out. What should I say to Mike when he's acting like such a forking asshole? That's bullshit. Soak my deck. Thanks, Eleanor. 
In fairness to Mike, he's actually doing the exact same thing that The Good Place Show does. Following up something that's rather serious and heavy with an immediate joke. So in fairness, Mike is actually being more mensch than bench. We have touched upon it, and the show does touch upon it in other ways throughout the show of motivation matters. That if you're just trying to be good because you think you're going to get rewarded for it, then that's really kind of undermines the entire concept of what you're trying to achieve. So swinging back around toward the conclusion, the way that the show rounds up is at the end, after they figure out the whole test thing and that people can get into the good place by being tested and then proven that they can actually get in there, the four core humans on the show get the reward of going to the good place. The judge is like, hey, you know what? You came up with a system that's basically saving all of humanity or at least giving people a chance to get to the good place. So they finally get to go to the real good place. It's not exactly what they were expecting it to be. Everybody in the good place is kind of miserable and just like mush-brained. Yeah, it's paradise, but we've been here forever. We've done everything that we ever wanted to do, that we could ever imagine wanting to do, because it keeps going on forever, has become meaningless. Right. And it goes back to when they were trying to explain to Michael, who's an immortal, that he can't understand why life is meaningful. And then when they got him to realize that he could be retired, which was essentially the same as him being killed, he then started to understand that, oh, because life ends, it has meaning. Eleanor said to Michael, all humans are aware of death, so we're all a little sad all the time. I'm trying to explain to Michael, who has lived for billions of baramies and was never going to face death. <laughs> I like what you did there. Couldn't understand the concept. And then they, they explained to the people who lived in the real good place, everyone had become happiness zombies. Because when anything is possible and you do everything and then you're done, but you still have infinity left. The good place has these magical doors, these green doors where you can go through and you can do whatever you want. Like Jason immediately goes and rides go-karts with monkeys. That'd be awesome. He did, yes. And he explained that monkeys were the best people to go go-kart riding with because they're smart enough to be able to give you the finger, but they're not smart enough to win. But he's gone for like two minutes. He's like, yeah, I, I go-karted with monkeys. Then I switched the monkeys out with rhinos. Then I switched it out to like dogs and jetpacks. He goes through all of these other scenarios. And like, then I got bored. And then Lisa Kudrow's character, who the rest of them are talking to, is like, that's the problem right there. It's like you have an infinity of Baramis to do every scenario you could possibly think of. But when you run through all of them, you're like, huh, there's nothing left to do. So they came up with this idea of there's a portal that you're not forced to go through it. It's a complete choice. But once you feel that your time has come to an end in the afterlife, you could walk through that door and become one with the universe. So even in the good place, if you want to, you can die for good. And everyone there gets all excited because now they're like, as Michael explains to them, hopefully knowing that you don't have to be here forever will help you feel happier while you are. Yeah. And I like how they also kind of brought that into an ongoing secondary question of well, what happens then when you become one of the universe? We don't know. 
Exactly. Right. And they kind of explain it as like a wave going back to the ocean. Oh, yeah. At the end, eventually, all of the characters decide that they're ready to move on. Tahani is the exception, but we can come back to her. But when trying to explain, because even the people, when they first introduced the concept of the door, it's like, what happens when you go through it? We had no idea. So at one point, when Chidi has decided that he's ready to move on, he is sitting and trying to explain it to Eleanor, and he uses a Buddhist conception. Picture a wave in the ocean. You can see it, measure it, its height, the way the sunlight refracts when it passes through, and it's there, and you can see it, you know what it is, it's a wave. And then it crashes on the shore, and it's gone. But the water is still there. The wave was just a a different way for the water to be for a little while. That's one conception of death for a Buddhist. The wave returns to the ocean, where it came from, and where it's supposed to be. Which is kind of like the, we're all just stardust. There have been different versions of it in different religious and philosophical traditions, but Eastern traditions like Buddhism is much less concerned with things like God concepts and the self reappearing in its form. Like, you you go to heaven, you're still you. Right. The whole nature of self-identity, which this show also does play with on a different philosophical level. But this whole idea of once you are done... To be honest, I didn't really read much up on the critical response to The Good Place. So I have no idea if anyone was arguing against this point, but if some people were trying to say, doesn't that sound like suicide? Because they're basically saying when you're done, you can just go. But it's not the same. But they weren't really alive anymore either. They were already dead, but their afterlife existence is ending. But it's also not the same as suicide, because suicide is based on despair. This is based on fulfillment. It's a peaceful, humane way to end your existence after you've achieved all of the fulfillment you can from your life. There's also the doorway of, again, they, they flat out say, we don't know what happens. Maybe that's a doorway to reincarnation. They leave it open-ended. Who knows? Yeah, maybe you come back again. And that's kind of what I mean by this. The show ended in a very, this show is over way, but they left the door cracked open just a little bit if they decided somewhere down the road they wanted to revisit. The other sort of philosophical things, just general things for me, I'm not even sure where they came from, but the behind that whole idea is like a lot of times in life, you know, the unsatisfied need motivates. Or another way of saying that is the only thing worse than not getting what you want is getting what you want. So a lot of times when you set a goal for yourself in life and you achieve it, you're like, huh, the pursuit of that goal drove you for a long time. And then once you achieved it, you don't really feel as fulfilled as you thought you would be or hoped you would be i feel that so hard right now and and didn't spend a lot of time on it but again this show was trying to say imagine that feeling even being able to have an infinite amount of magical scenarios whatever you want them to be you know traveling all around the world to all different times whatever your scenario you wanted to do you can do whatever you want in The Good Place. And that'd be great for a lot of Baramies, but after a while... Yeah, because they even had like the Doug Forsett character, which was one of the characters that exemplified 
sacrificing your own personal happiness to try to put a lot of good into the world, which we'll come back to later. They showed him as partying hard when he got to the good place. <laughs> I didn't even catch that. Yeah, it's like he, he was also in his younger body, not his older body, and he was partying his ass off. <laughs> Making up for all the partying he did not do when he was on Earth. But yeah, when you have an infinite amount of baromies and almost an unlimited number of choices for things that you could do, it gets old after a while. Now, here's the thing, and this is the philosophy that I struggle with. I'd live a good life to get into the good place to be able to do the things that I want to do, but all of the things that I want to do in the good place would put me in the bad place. That's the other thing that they never addressed in the show. Right. They never show any of the things that people are doing in The Good Place with that power ever going into a gray area. They show people doing things like, again, go-karting, playing Madden 400,000 times until you get the perfect score. In a stadium. Reading all the books, traveling all around the world. So we never see anybody do anything else. We just are left to our imagination what people would have done or might have done with their with that power in The Good Place. Which one of those would you do? Of what? In, in the afterlife, what would you do to become complete? That's a tough question. Maybe I should more lean it towards which one of the characters would you most follow? The nerd in me can see some appeal to not just reading all the books, but even Chidi was like, he got to have conversations with some famous people yeah, I can see you following the cheaty side. So some aspect of that is appealing to me, but I would also want to experience or investigate things I never did on Earth. Like I never got married and have children. This is the good place, not the bad place. No, in terms of, I don't know. I, I did not experience that dimension of right, human life. Right. Maybe I should try it and see if I liked it or not. Right. It would be the good place. So you could you can cheat and expedite through the whole process. Like you have kids, they grow up, they go to college, they become the president. You can play out whatever scenario you want to play out. Right. What is this proud feeling that parents get? I, I've never had children, so I don't understand. So it would be nice to see what that felt like. Yeah. For me, I think I would go more the Tahani route. As you... As you witness, I dabble in a lot of things, and I'm not good at any of them, but I like to do them, so I would really like to go through and actually become good at things. Anything. <laughs> at, at one point, I thought of you, not just because the character was Michael, but Michael, at one point, spends some of his time, before he decides to become a human, which we'll get to, he's trying to write a song, and, he's, <laughs> it, and it's just like, they're like horrible lyrics. But he's also hey. trying to, no, he's also trying to play the guitar. And Janet shows up as like, you know, the number one request of men over 50 who get into the good place is a magical guitar, which just plays for you. <laughs> it's like, do you want that? And he's like, no, I want to learn. Okay, have that on standby. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right. Sounds about right. So something like that is like, I, I don't know how to play. I would. But then when he becomes the person, he takes guitar lessons. He's yes. like, oh, you have any idea how long I've been trying to yeah. figure that out. <laughs> so I would do something like that. I've never, I would like to learn how to play musical instruments. I would like to learn how to sing. Right. Perform. I really connected with that. That he finally took, because I've been saying for like 10 years that I should take vocal lessons. Because I've been trying to figure it out, and I just cannot figure it out. And I know three lessons, and I'm be like, oh, that's what I've been missing and been miserable about for 15 years. That's great. 
but again, that's the whole thing that they didn't explore enough in terms of just so you could just try all sorts of different like scenarios right. like that. What I, what I liked about it, and that's kind of the reason I, I bring that up of like which character, because the characters are so different and they take such different routes. I think they set that up so that everybody has one that they could really more identify with. And even though I don't identify with Tahani at all on her normal personality, because I am very much not rich or famous or good looking or athletic or anything else good. I definitely connected with the wanting to be better or good at a lot of things. Like I'm, as you are again, well aware, I tell myself that I'm terrible at everything because I am terrible at everything because I'm not the best. So that's always been my mind frame. If I'm, if I am not comparable to the best in the world, then I am terrible at it. And that's always been my philosophy and the way that I think of things. That's how I, that's how I look at things. So I'm terrible at everything and I would like to not be terrible. And if it takes me 5,000 baramies to get not terrible at a thing, let's do it. And that's the whole point of what they're asking you to imagine. And then it's like, imagine you did that and everything else we could possibly think of. And then there was just nothing left. Again, it would take a lot of time. An infinite number of baramies. But once you finally ran through all of those scenarios, it's impossible to imagine feeling that fulfilled but at least conceptualize, you can conceptualize that it's possible that that could all happen. That was a fun tangent. Yeah. <laughs> Before we close on some of the other things, one of the final, I guess, things that was interesting about the show for me is at one point when Eleanor before this happens, before they get to that point where they're still in season three and finishing up the experiment, Eleanor is frustrated and basically asks Janet, What's the meaning of life? What's going to make us happy? Why is life so hard? One of Janet's best speeches, pretty good answer to this, she says, the more human I become, the less things make sense. But that's part of the fun, right? If there was an answer I could give you to how the universe works, it wouldn't be special. It would just be machinery fulfilling its cosmic design. It would just be a big, dumb food processor. But since nothing seems to make sense... When you find something or someone that does, it's euphoria. Whoa. Whoa. So for her, her personal connection with Chidi was very important to her. And that fulfillment of that relationship. And same with Janet's connection with Jason. But it's also nice that they also ended both of those. Right. Chidi decided, as fulfilling as it is, among other things, to be with you for infinite number of baromies, Eleanor... I'm ready to go. And he even brings up that he was ready to go way before. He just kept going for her sake. Right. And she initially even says, I don't want you to go. And he's like, okay, fine, I won't go. And then she even comes around to saying, that's a selfish rule. I'm being selfish. If you're ready to go and you're at peace, forcing you to say is not fair. And right. she lets him go. And then the same thing with Jason going and leaving Janet behind. Although Janet gets to basically play Dr. Manhattan. Janet says, I don't experience time the same way you do. I experience all of time all at once. We'll always remember you, basically, because she says to Jason, like, to me, remembering moments with you is the same as living in them. So the final main story thing that happens is that Michael decides that he's fulfilled, <laughs> tries to go through the door and nothing happens. And he's like, why doesn't this work for me? It's not fair. And then they go to the judge and basically say, Let's let Michael be human. 
Yeah, because only humans can go through that door. Only humans can go through that door. But he becomes human, but he gets sent to Earth. So he has to live a life. And then if when he dies, he's going to go through the system and maybe get to the good place. But even Eleanor says, it's like, dude, before you do this, you have to realize you go down to Earth while you're gone. Things could change. Sean could stage a coup. The judge can change your mind. This might not be the way that the afterlife works anymore. So when you die, you might not be coming back here to the system that you know works. And he's like, well, that's part of what makes it special. I won't know what happens when I die. So at least I like the fact that they established that idea that even though he's going down there and becoming human with a whole bunch of knowledge about how the afterlife works, it is still possible that once he is human, he might not know that things changed because who knows, a billion Beremies later, while he's living another 30 years on Earth, they've made a whole bunch of changes to the afterlife and it doesn't work that way anymore. And also in a way for him, becoming human is the good place. Yes. But one of the things that's nice is once Michael is down there and he's human, Janet and Eleanor are talking about, I wonder how he's doing. Eleanor gives another nice little speech that kind of sums up a lot of the show, too. It's like, he's doing the same as every human. Some good days, some bad days. He's got a few friends and a few people he can't stand. He's learning some things all by himself and hopefully learning to ask for help when he needs it. He's messing up and trying again and messing up again, and then getting things wrong, and then trying to make them right. That's what everybody does. Show ends on that whole point of, yeah, we're giving you a fictional idea about what the afterlife is like and stuff, but it's also a show about, hey, don't be a dick. Try to be a good person. Everyone should at least try. So in essence, the whole show is about, it's okay to be a hater, just Just don't don't be be a a dick. dick. Our podcast predicted it! (laughs) we are awesome we weren't supposed to say this for legal reasons but we were actually script consultants and the entire good place was actually based on the idea of our podcast and i'm paid by Kristen bell to talk about how awesome she is all the time Before we get to our final conclusion and our metaphorical ratings, I just wanted to briefly touch on philosophy. There's a lot of philosophy in the show, but the ones that pertain to whether or not you're a good person, again, coming back to the show's fundamental, what does it mean to be a good person? Why should you be a good person? And if you're not as good as you should be, can you become a better person? They revolve around and they evolve through several different traditional philosophical arguments. One is the Kantian uh, categorical imperative, which says that we must act according to an unwavering moral code that has nothing to do with situational variables. And this is like the oversimplified systems of right and wrong. You know, you always do this no matter what. There's only one and only one choice. The circumstances don't matter. For me, it reminded me not to go off on too much of a tangent, but it reminded me of the type of morality that annoys me when people say, oh, and this is usually made by religious people, oh, just believe in God and follow things like the Ten Commandments and you're a good person. That's way too oversimplified. Simply believing in a God, 
I don't understand how that makes you good or bad. And even the moral code, like something like the Ten Commandments, is like it's pretty simplistic. But it also goes back to the same thing we we're talking about before. You're only following it to get into heaven, then. Yes, your motivation is corrupt. The flip side of that, which the show shows a lot often through Chidi's character, that trying to be that absolute and this is right, and if you don't do that, then you're wrong. Like his, the thing that they use as a softer example of this is that it's never okay to lie. And he has lots of problems in the show where he has to tell a lie. He ties himself all up in knots anytime he tries to. He has a great personification of anxiety because that is. is always how my brain works. The opposite of the Kantian and categorical imperative that the show brings up later is moral particularism. And it says that there are no fixed rules that work in every situation. You have to choose your actions based on the particular situation, which is a more realistic approach to morality that you have to take in the particulars of the circumstances, which is a little bit closer to the way I just criticized religion. It is a little bit closer to the way that laws try to work, meaning that there's a difference between you got drunk and you ran over a homeless person, that's vehicular manslaughter, you killed someone, it's a crime, you need to be punished. But that's a very different crime than you were a serial killer who killed 100 people. First degree murder. Yeah, that's first degree murder. Motivation is different versus a horrible accident that ended in someone's life. They're both bad, but our legal system tries to differentiate in terms of making the punishment fit the crime, as well as like in there are this varies by states in the United States. In some states, there's what are called stand your ground laws. If someone breaks into your house and you shoot and kill them, automatic self-defense. In other states, you could still go to jail for killing someone. It's also debatable, which we'll not get into, but that's another example of moral particularism. The specifics of the situation have to be taken into account to determine whether or not an act is moral or not. The other one that we've already mentioned before is moral desert. The simple version of this is if you act with virtue, in other words, do good, you deserve a reward. But as we've also talked about before, if that's what you're doing good for, if that's the only reason you're doing good, you're not good. Yeah, we spend enough time on that. Yeah, we spend enough time on that. The other thing that gets brought up is Aristotelian virtue ethics, which is actually the entire basis of what Chidi spends the entire series trying to teach people. And this is that the purpose of ethics is to become good, not merely to know the difference between right and wrong. And that's why Chidi is trying to teach everyone ethics so that they can become better people in practice, not just in theory. And then consequentialism is actually what ends up showing why the point system in The Good Place doesn't work. And it says that the consequences of your actions are the ultimate basis for judging whether or not those actions were right or wrong. And in season three, that's revealed that the complexity of the modern, highly interconnected world inadvertently created bad consequences from many mundane actions, which is why no one earned enough points to get into The Good Place for over 500 years. So we talked a little bit about that earlier as well, that that became the basis for why they needed to come up with a better system than the one that they were using for assigning points. The other minor one, again, this is not an extensive list, by the way. There's a lot of philosophy in The Good Place. The next to last one is something called the happiness pump, 
which is used to great comedic effects because, of course, Jason immediately starts laughing the first time the happiness pump is mentioned. And even when they ask, when Janet says, oh, that guy's a happiness pump, Michael's like, I remember Chidi explaining that to us, but I got distracted because Jason wouldn't stop laughing. (laughs) But the happiness pump means it's the downside of a severe commitment to always acting in a way that maximizes the overall good to a point where you are basically trying to pump as much happiness into the world as possible at your own expense. And this is exemplified in the show by the character Doug Forsett, who leaves like a ridiculously virtuous life to the point where like people walk all over him and take advantage of him. He's not happy. He's not doing anything for himself. He's just trying to self-sacrifice for everyone. And it's revealed that even that approach doesn't work because even he doesn't earn enough points to get into the good place. Plus, again, in general, it's criticized from a philosophical standpoint. It's like, that's not really doing you any good. It's also been shown to actually not even do society much good of trying to take that because it's too much of an extreme focus on maximizing the overall good ends up actually hurting everyone. And kind of also the idea of you can only do so much good for other people if you're not doing enough good for yourself. Yes, at a certain point, There needs to be some level of self-fulfillment before you can self-actualize to help other people. So it's not selfish to say you have to help yourself first. I've often said, until I can find a way to be happy with myself, I can't imagine being happy with other people in terms of a relationship. If you're a miserable person by yourself, a relationship isn't going to fix you. Forever Alone Squad! Woohoo! It's a weird thing to high five, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And the last and final piece of philosophy is what the entire show is based on. The book is mentioned and even used as a prop many times throughout the the show. And in the the author even appears in the show in the fourth season, late in the fourth season. There's a book called What We Owe to Each Other. It's a philosophy book written by Tim Scanlon, which you can read for free online if you want to Google it. You can actually read the free PDF of it if you don't want to actually buy the book. So it is available online. What We Owe to Each Other. The show's uh, creator, the Good Places creator and head writer Michael Schur said that this book was the spine of the entire show, that they based the entire show on this. And in this book, it presents the idea of contractualism, where the point of morality is not to accumulate goodness points, but instead to live up to our duties to each other. So again, this whole idea that a certain amount of good is for your own self-fulfillment, but to be truly good, you're acting selflessly, helping others, and in combination with those people also helping you, that's what really is the purpose of being a good person and being good people. I don't study philosophy. I, I like thinking about these things, and I, the reason I don't study it Partially because my brain would be bored because of, you know, I'm me. But also partially because I like to come to these conclusions on my own and think about that. And that's actually very similar to something that I've I've often said and acted on and said. It's kind of my own personal morality of I focus on myself and try to make myself happy. And if I can bring other people up with me, I will. So, like, I'm, I'm not going to, like, fully sacrifice my own happiness to bring others up. But if I can sacrifice a little bit of time or effort to help other people come up, I will. 
the sacrificing yourself, not working is the happiness pump problem to doing something that you can to help other people. I thought it was done nicely with a metaphor at the very end. When Eleanor walks through the doorway, she dissolves into these little like glowing dots. And one of those falls down to earth and touches someone on the shoulder. He went to the mailbox, found out that there was a piece of mail that wasn't his. He threw it in the trash. The little Eleanor sparkle hits him in the shoulder. He perks up and he looks over and he goes and gets the thing out of the trash can and he delivers it to the person. It turns out that it's Michael. It's Michael's rewards card. Right. So that whole idea of, at least for that one brief moment, that dude did something to help someone else. And bringing it into the real life, how hard is it to hold the door open for somebody? Right. You know, little things like that. Mm-hmm. And on the other side, say thank you to the person holding the door open for you. Yes, there is an unfortunate lack of common courtesy on both sides in society, and the right. world would be a nicer place if we could be nicer to each other. You're an asshole, by the way. I am an asshole. Phil, I am theoretically good, but in practice, I'm a forking asshole. <laughs> So let's bring this to a conclusion. Why don't you go first with your metaphorical rating and close? I give this the happy place. Hey! Uh, Two of the things I enjoy most in this world are comedy and deep thinking. You wouldn't really think the deep thinking part hearing me on this podcast, but I actually spend a lot of time on this. This show has both in spades as well, which is one of my favorite card games, by the way. Spades. I love that (laughs) game. On the deep thinking side, I struggle on going in depth on things like this, on especially like on this podcast, because by the time we get to this, I don't remember everything I had thought of. I don't go that far in depth on fictional things a lot of times either. I, I bring it to real world, and then that's when I go in depth on it. So it's not always relevant to the fictional thing that I started on. My memory sucks. But my memory sucking also helps on the comedy side, especially for shows like this, Because the comedy was so brilliant that it's not obvious comedy. And so I could watch this over and over and over again. It would still have the same impact because I won't be expecting it. I know I've talked about this a couple of times where it's like, yeah, the comedy was okay, but rewatchability is terrible because I know even the first time watching it, I knew what the punchline was going to be. But on this one, they don't really do set up punchline. It's just funny. And that's the brilliance of this show is the way that those two work together. So I can watch this over and over again and still be entertained. But also, I mean, as you can see by the many, many tangents we went on, there is so much deeper in this show that it's so easy to just go off and just start thinking about what does this mean? What does this mean philosophically? What does this mean to me personally? And how can I bring this into my own life to make myself a better person? And this show is just perfect. My metaphorical rating is The Funny Philosopher, which is actually going to sound very similar to what Mike just said. I like shows that make me laugh, and I like shows that make me think. But I love shows that make me do both. In fact, for me, laughter, and by that I mean not mean-spirited at other people's expense, good-natured laughter is one of the best aspects of the human experience for me. One of the things I loved about the show is I used to read a lot 
of philosophy, both Western and but especially Eastern philosophy. I am very grateful to this show for reminding me and for making me laugh at the same time. To paraphrase the show's final words, I would like to conclude with, with all the love in my heart and all the wisdom in the universe, watch The Good Place and take it sleazy. Thank you for listening to Fanboy and the Hater. We really appreciate it and would love to hear your feedback. Give us a rating, write a review, reach out to us on Twitter at Fanboy and Hater, email us at thefanboyandthehater at gmail.com. You can find all of our episodes on our website, fanboyandhater.podbean.com. That's P O D B E A N. Where you can download the free Podbean mobile app for Android and iOS. You can also find us on all major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and many more. Once again, thanks for listening to The Fanboy and the Hater.